0: On our own, our Father, our souls are not well. Our souls are not even sickly, nor troubled, nor difficult. Our souls are dead. We are hopeless. We are enemies of you, estranged from you hating You, and under Your wrath. On our own, our Father, we have nothing to contribute to You. We are infinitely needy. Oh, but our Father, there is such great hope in Jesus Christ. For Christ is our life Christ as our ransom, Christ is the one who has redeemed us. Christ is our satisfaction for sin. Christ is our hope, Christ is our life, Christ is the way we live, Christ is our longing. Christ is everything. And our Father this morning, as we look at a passage with which we have become quite familiar, might Christ be seen again to be preeminent and might, might we leave this place full of hope for what Christ has done and what Christ is doing in us. Would you transform us this morning, our Father, by this hopeful word we pray in the name of Christ and for the glory of Christ and for the exaltation of Christ and for our satisfaction in Christ. Amen. I have told my wife on more than one occasion... I am impatient, to which she typically responds with a small nodding of the head, yes, I know. I want things done quickly. I hate, and I know we're not supposed to use the word hate. We've taught our children, don't use the word hate. But I hate waiting. I want a 24-hour virus to go away in six hours. I want one day, one day dry cleaning done in six hours. I want one hour dry cleaning done in 15 minutes. I want fast food to be faster food. I want to speed read books. In fact, I, I listen to a fair number of books on Audible and there's a mechanism on there where you can speed it up to like one and a quarter or one and a half times the normal rate. I've been known to do that so that I can get through the book more quickly. I, 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 um, I don't like traffic lights. I've never met a traffic light yet that turned green fast enough for me or red fast enough for the guy next to me. Um, I, I, I get tired of the slowness of inter, internet pages loading. If it takes more than about 2.2 seconds, I'm hitting the refresh button. If it takes more than about seven seconds, I'm, I'm quitting my browser because there's obviously something wrong that needs to be fixed and rebooting my browser. And if it takes more than about 10 seconds, I'm shutting the whole computer down because something has definitely gone wrong. It shouldn't ever take this long and, and I need to reboot this whole thing and get it going properly. I want tomorrow's tasks done to be done, to be done yesterday. Unfortunately, the world in which I live in, tomorrow, to, to, uh, tomorrow's tasks aren't done yesterday. Uh, yesterday's tasks are done tomorrow. And I want the process of sanctification to be done today. I want to be done today. So that I can go home and I can leave here and say, okay, that's it. Check that off my list. I'm sanctified. It's all done. Nothing more to do in the sanctification process. For me, I am fully mature. There's nothing more to accomplish. I am complete in Christ in every sense. And I suspect that while none of us would say it quite that way, most of us are impatient with sanctification. We want to be holy, we want to be sanctified, we want to be like Jesus Christ, we just don't want to go through the hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly process of becoming holy. We want to be holy now. And that mindset has likely been part of what has generated some false teaching about sanctification, things like the second act of grace and perfectionism. People just getting tired of the process of of sanctification and coming up with a means by which they say, I'm done, even if they really aren't done yet. But in His sovereign wisdom, God has mandated that the process of sanctification will take time. It will take the hourly and daily application of the Word of God to hundreds of decisions that we make every day and hundreds of thoughts and attitudes that we cultivate every day and hundreds of actions that we take every day and it will it will call for those actions to be repeated not just daily but weekly, monthly, yearly for decades to cement our sanctification in Christ. And no matter how mature we become, we will always live with the reality that there still is remaining sin in us. No matter how sanctified we get, no matter how mature we are in Christ, there will always be remaining sin in us. And it is... It is that very issue that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 7 verses 14 to 25 and I invite you to come back to that text with me. And Paul has been talking here about The reality of indwelling sin, and this indwelling sin still stays with us, though we are in Christ, there's still a remainder of sin in in us, dwelling in us, even like an illegal squatter might be living in a home that he does not legally own. This is what, this is Paul's message in this section, verses 14 to 25. The believer's life is a battle against remaining sin. The believer's life is an ongoing, persistent, unending battle against remaining sin. The believer can be assured that he will always be battling against remaining sin. The believer's life is a battle against remaining sin. We are looking at this passage, verses 14 to 25, for the third time now. And In previous weeks, we have seen the two laments of the Apostle Paul in this passage, and today we will see the believer's hope and the believer's reality. The believer's hope and the believer's reality. The believer's life is, Paul says in this passage, a battle against remaining sin. And, and we've taken some time to unpack the, the um, identification of who Paul is talking about in this passage. So, 18 times in this passage he uses the personal pronoun, I... And he is, we have discovered, talking about himself, and he is talking about himself as a mature believer. He's not talking about himself as an unbeliever, but he's talking about someone who has been redeemed and transformed and even is walking in maturity, even the maturity of an apostle. And and there are multiple reasons for saying that. But uh, one of the things particularly that we have drawn attention to is the fact that Paul hates the sin that he does. His very a perspective on what sin is and how he relates to it has been changed so he says in verse 16 uh, if i do the very thing i do not want to do i agree with the law confessing the law is good i don't want to do my sin in fact he says explicitly in verse 15 that he hates it and he says again in verse 20 that he is he is doing the thing that he does not want to do so his desires have changed. His his perspective on what sin is and how sin should be responded to has changed. He has a fundamentally changed attitude and perspective towards sin. And this is only the mark of a redeemer, or of a redeemed man. Only a redeemed man hates sin at this level. And moreover, he not only hates sin, but he also loves righteousness. So he says... In verse, 20, verse 19, the good that I want. In other words, I have, a, I have a new desire and I have a new longing and I have a new wish to do something that is pleasing to the Lord. And he talks about that again in verse 21. Uh, I, I am the one who wants to do good. I have this, this desire to do that which is pleasing to the Lord, honorable to the Lord, is morally right and upstanding and righteous. That's, that's me. He is yearning. For the completion of his faith. He has a genuine faith. God has started to transform him. God has changed his longings. God has changed his desires. And he is waiting for the completion of that faith. So in this section, Paul is talking about himself. Paul is talking about himself as a mature believer. And we have noted that, that when Paul talks about doing the thing that he doesn't want to do and not doing the thing that he does want to do, he's not talking about all the time, every time, but he is... He's talking about something perhaps that is repeated, but he's not someone that that lives there consistently. Uh, This is is his explanation, though, of, of what is happening when the believer does engage in some kind of sin. So here he is talking in some sense about a believer's godly anxiety. It is his anxiousness to be godly and his sorrow and his anxiousness over remaining sin and remaining sin's influence in his life as paul has talked about these things we noted that there are two laments that he makes in this passage the first lament is in verses 14 to 17 it is that that i do what i hate paul notice notice notes in verse 14 that that he is of the flesh sold into bondage to sin or or perhaps sold under sin And because he is under sin, and sin still has some influence in him, and sin has some authority still over him, sin still has some pull in his life, there are times when he is sinning that he sees himself as being in bondage. I am doing what I hate. And as he thinks about that, um, this is not just him, is it? This is the life of every believer. This is, this is where all believers live, where, where they, they hate the thing that they are doing when they are doing and engaging in sin. Even when a redeemed person is justified, sin is still powerful. And as one writer says, it hangs on and contaminates his living and frustrates his inner desire to obey the will of God. As Paul thinks about himself in this particular position, he notes in verse 16 that he agrees with the law about his sin. He is condemned by the law about his sin, and he agrees in verse 16 that the law is right. He, he agrees that the law is good. The, the law has has cast a right judgment on him when he is engaged in his sin. And And, and what is the source of this sin? What? Where does this stuff come from? He notes in verse 17, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. His problem is not that, that he is in sin. It is not that his core identity is, is with sin. It's not that he's still living in Adam. He has been moved out of Adam and into Christ. His problem is not that he is in sin, but his problem is that sin still remains in him. This is the illegal squatter that has taken up residence. He is dwelling in a place, residing and living in a place that he does not have a right to be. This is Paul's problem. This is our problem. Our problem is our bent towards sin. It's the unsanctified parts of our lives. So this is the first believer's first lament, I, I do what I hate. But, but it's even worse than that. Verses 18 to 20 tell us that there's a second lament. I don't do what I love. So notice he says in verse 18, There is nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. When when I do what, what I do out of not the power of the Spirit, but out of the power of the flesh, there is nothing good that happens. Nothing good ever comes from my life when I operate by the flesh. And, and when I'm operating by the flesh, I don't do what I now desire to do. When I operate by the flesh, I, I don't do what I now love to do. So he says in verse 18, the willing is present in me. I have a new desire and I, I have a new longing, but the doing of the good is not. I'm not doing the thing that, that I love to do and that I want to do. And he reiterates that in not just verse 18, but he reiterates it in verse 19. He says, For the good that I want, I do not do. He desires the good, but he does not do what he desires. God's changed his longings. God's changed his heart. But he doesn't do it. Now, again... This doesn't mean that he always fails. This doesn't mean that the Apostle Apostle Paul's life is a life of continual sin. People aren't looking at the Apostle Paul and saying, well, he always sins and he is never obedient to Christ and he's never changed, he's never transformed in any way. That's not what Paul is saying. But he is saying that whenever he fails, this is what's going on. His failure is not continual, but, but it will be repeated, won't it? And it will be somewhere between occasional and frequent. This stuff is going to come back up again. He, he doesn't like what he does when he sins and he doesn't like that he doesn't do what is righteous when he fails to do what is righteous. But, but this, is his, this is his reality. This is where he lives. And it's where we live. Where does this stuff come from? He answers again in verse 20, If I'm doing the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Where does this come from? It comes from indwelling sin. And when he says, I'm not the one doing it, he's not absolving himself of guilt, but he is simply saying, I am in Christ, and Christ has changed me, Christ has renewed me, and when I do this stuff, this is not the product of what Christ does. This is not the transforming work of Christ. This is not the reality of having a new identity in Christ. Christ is not the reason for my sin. Christ does not produce my sin. Christ produces righteousness. Christ produces freedom from sin. Christ produces liberty from sin. So when you see me sinning, it's not because I'm in Christ. It's because in that moment I am operating by the flesh. These are the laments of the believer. He does what he hates. And he doesn't do what he loves. And if, if everything would just end, if Paul would end this chapter or this section in verse 20, that would be despairing. You, we might walk away and say, is there any hope? Is there anything that can give us any kind of encouragement? Is there any resolution, Paul, to this dilemma or, or is what you said in chapters five and six really a false hope? You said in five and six that we've been redeemed. You, you said in five and six that we've been moved out of Adam. You've, you've said that, that sin is no longer our master. You've, you've said that Christ is our master. You've said that sin no longer has to reign over us. Were you just teasing us, Paul? Is, is there, is there really nothing that can help us out of this? Is it true that, that sin is no longer our master? Or is that a false hope, Paul? There is hope. There is hope. And it's given to us in verses 21 through the first part of verse 25. The believer's hope, Jesus sets us free. The believer's hope is that Jesus sets us free. And as Paul begins this third section... Verse 21. He reiterates in verse 21 what he has already twice said about indwelling sin. I find then, he says, that the principle, the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. So he's reiterating that that sin is still living in him. So like he said in verse 17, like he said in verse 20. Now he reiterates, sin is still in in me. And and notice what he says at the beginning of verse 21. He says, I find then. This, this is Paul's way of saying, I've, I've examined all the facts in the case and this is what I've discovered. I've looked at the biblical data and I have looked at my life and I've looked at the lives of others around me and this is my discovery. This is the conclusion that I have reached. And what is his conclusion? The conclusion is the principle that evil is present in me there is there is something of evil that is always present in me or with me and that little phrase being present in me is it actually has the idea of laying alongside him it is beside him wherever he goes here is this principle of evil and as one commentator commentator has insightfully said This evil, here personified, may be lying down, but it is certainly not sleeping. It is pictured as if it were watching the apostle to see whether he is about to carry out good intention. And whenever such a noble thought or suggestion enters Paul's heart, evil immediately interrupts in order to turn the good deed into its opposite. Isn't that the way we live? Even when there's an inclination, even when, even when I want to do good, even when I start to do good, even when I do good, there is something that is inextricably always pulling me away from that good, drawing me away from righteousness. And this is the principle that Paul says that there is evil in me. In fact, it's even stronger than that. He says then I, I find then that the principle that evil is present to me the word principle is not the word principle as an idea, but is actually the word law. And I think it's better rendered that way in this passage because he's going to talk consistently throughout the passage. About the law. So we see in verse 21, the law of God. Verse 23, the law of my mind. Verse 23, a different law. Uh, The law of sin. Verse 25, um, my mind is serving the law of God and my flesh the law of sin. So law, law, law. And verse 21, the law that evil is present in me. When Paul says, um, the law... He's talking about something that is more than just an idea. He's talking about something that compels us. He's talking about something that commands us. He is talking about something that dictates action. The flesh doesn't just entice us to sin. The the flesh pushes us to sin. The flesh manipulates us to sin. The the flesh wants to control us so that we stay in sin. And when Paul says here, the principle that evil is within me, he's talking about the same thing that he'll talk about in verse 23, the thing that is different from the law of God, the thing that is called the law of sin. Verse 25 again, the law of sin. He's talking here, the law of evil, it's the law of sin. It's the flesh. That thing that wants to disobey good, and yet, and yet, notice that even while that evil is present in me, Paul says, "I am the one who wants to do good. I, I have this this longing, this this desire to do good." And and in fact, the, the, this word um, "want" is 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 a word that we've seen before. It has has the idea of willing or wishing or longing. He goes to the to the inward motivation of the man. This is my will. This is my want. This is what I will do. And he says, "It is the one who wants to do good." In fact, it, he he uses it in the present tense, so so it is something that is continual. This is not just a one-time desire. This is not a desire that he had on one occasion or on a couple of occasions, but this is his regular desire. I have, Paul says, a new desire. And this is Paul's way of saying, I, I've been transformed by, by Jesus Christ. My fundamental longings have changed. And so when he sins, his sin is not his real desire. When, when he commits the sin, yes, that's what he's wanting in that moment. But as he steps back from the sin and as he evaluates his life and as he looks at his life, he says, I don't want that. You know what that's like, don't you? I, I had an experience of that at 5 o'clock this morning. My alarm went off early as it, as it normally does. And um, I was rolling out of bed and I either woke up Regine or perhaps she was already awake and as I'm rolling out of bed and she says, Are you okay? I guess I was rolling out really slowly or something. I said, I am so tired. And she said... She said, well, you want me to get you, get up and, and, and make you an egg or something and give you some protein? And I immediately responded, I don't want an egg. I want sleep. <laughs> and sarcasm was like coating every word, dripping. In fact, I think I need to go clean my carpets from the sarcasm that has fallen off those words. And I took about three steps and I thought, it's not what i wanted to say she wants to help me she wants to minister to me she wants me to feel better and she she wants to come alongside and in that moment that was that was her thought about how she could best minister to me this is the woman that i love this is the woman that we have shared life together for 31 years how, how could i respond to her in that way that's not what i want that's what paul's saying here <laughs> the the evil that is in me I don't want that. That's not my longing. That's not my desire. I have a new desire. And sometimes though, I do the things that I don't want to do. I hate them, but I do them and I don't do the things that I do want to do. He hates his sin. And Paul reiterates and emphasizes that his desires has changed. Notice what he says in verse 22. For I, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. So, so verse 16, he says he agrees with the law. So the law has rendered a verdict on his life. And the law said, Paul, you're not righteous. And he says, I agree. And now he says not only, yes, I agree with the law, but notice he also says, I joyfully concur with the law. I don't just agree with the law. It is my joy to agree with the law. I am in happy agreement with the moral standard of the law. Paul says he loves the law. And, 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 and Paul here is is merely echoing the very thing that the psalmists have said repeatedly over and over and over in the Psalms. Just listen while I read you some of these psalms. Psalm 1, verse 2, speaking about the righteous man. His delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 19 verse, uh, verse eight. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So he sees the precepts of the Lord. He sees He sees the dictates of of the Lord in the Word of God and he sees the principles that guide life in the Word of God and he says, They are my joy. They they bring rejoicing to my heart. Psalm 119, of course, is the standard on on this principle. We see this so many times in Psalm 119. For instance, verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I've rejoiced... In your way and what you have commanded as much as if I had uncountable amount of wealth. See it also in verse 16. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Verse 24, "...your testimonies also are my delight, they are my counselors." Verse 35, "...make me to walk in the pathway of your commandments, for I delight in it." Verse 47, "...I shall delight in your commandments, which I love." Verse 70, "...their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law." Verse 77, "...may your compassion come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight." Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I love your law, I love your law, I love your law. And Paul says, this too is my love. I long for the law, I delight in the law, the law is my treasure. And notice that this is not just a superficial joy in the law of God, but he says, I concur with the law of God in the inner man. So inside of me, I'm not just showing up at church and saying, "Well, we're going to sing a bunch of hymns today, and I know everybody's going to be happy, and and we're gonna we're gonna make it loud and joyful." And so I'm gonna I'm gonna do that, but inwardly, I just really am not interested. No, Paul says, inside of me, regardless of what's going on outside of me, inside of me there is joy in God's law. It it, it, it is in the inner man. This is Paul's way of saying that the inner man has been renewed. The inner man has been changed. Paul here, I believe, is talking about the same principle that he will talk about in verse 23, the law of my mind, and verse 25, with my mind I am serving the law of God. In other words, there's something that has changed fundamentally inside of Paul so that now he has a new mind to be able to obey God's law. He's talking about the transformation that comes from being in Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The old self is got, gone. There is a new self, a new man, a new creature, a new creation in Christ. I'm underneath Christ. I'm not in Adam. I'm not in sin. I am in righteousness. This is, this is the new man. This is this is what Ezekiel talks about in in, uh, chapter 36, verse 26, about getting a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. So a heart of stone can't respond to God in faith. A heart of stone can't be obedient to God. A heart of stone is completely unrighteous, but God gives us a fleshly heart, puts, puts His Word and His law inside of us, so the law is not just external. Now the law is internal. And the law internally changes and transforms us. That's what Paul's talking about here. In the inner man, I'm, I'm different. I've been fundamentally changed. And I concur with the law of God. Oh, friend, this is hopeful. If, if you have an inward desire and longing to obey God, an inward Response to the Word of God that says, "I love this book. I love what this book says," and you have you have a longing to obey it. Oh, give thanks to God, for He has produced this in you. This is this is His work of of redemption. This is His work of transformation. And then. Having said that in verse 22, again in verse 23, kind of like a cycle, back and forth, Paul comes back to this same theme of wrestling in verse 23. So, I concur with the law of God. I I agree with, I delight in the law of God. But, verse 23, I see a different law in the members of my body. The way my body is responding and the way the flesh uses my body, I see something different going on. It's... Different in what way? It is different from the law of God. It's not God's law that's being worked out in my body when I sin. It's a different law. He will identify that different law in verse 23 as the law of sin. And at the end of this section, verse 25, he says, On the other hand, with my flesh I am obeying the law of sin. This is this different law. It's the law of sin. It's the law of evil. And it's being worked out in my members. Throughout my body and throughout my life, this law of sin is being worked out in me and through me. Now, he is not saying that the body is inherently evil. He's not being Gnostic. He's not saying... Um, that in and of itself the body is evil. He's saying the body is neutral in the sense that the body itself doesn't compel us to sin, but it is the flesh that takes the body and uses the body and produces evil in and through that body. It's, it's interesting that that Paul uses very similar language or uses a similar picture in chapter 3. When he, when he talks in chapter 3 about the depravity of man and the fallenness of man, listen to how he identifies the different body parts in which our depravity is manifested. Chapter 3, verse 13, "...their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving, the poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So, with their throat and tongue and lips and mouth and feet and eyes, Paul says there is manifestation of sin. This is the reality in which we live. That our body and its weakness becomes a place where sin produces itself in what we see and what we hear and what we taste and what we touch and what we feel and where we go and what we do. And you just got to be you have to be aware that there is virtually no limit to the manifestation of sin in the weakness of your body. Sin will take your body and twist it and use it for ungodly purposes. And we need to be need to be aware of that cognizant of it and acting on it in all honesty there were two or three times this week where I was sitting at my desk and and I said Lord my my body is physically tired I didn't get enough sleep last night and I know that in my body when my body is sleep deprived I have a propensity to sin in this area Lord, would you keep me from that? Would you, would you keep my mind focused on you? Would you, would you cause my affections for you to be stronger than the inclination of the flesh, which is desiring to use my body in a way that is contrary to be obedient to you? Oh, brothers, you, you need to be thinking that way. That the flesh will take your body and use it against you. In fact, notice what he says in verse 23. The law of the flesh, the law of evil, the law of sin is waging war against you. It's in a battle against you. It is it is a defeated foe, but it is a foe that is refusing to give up the fight, and it is constantly fighting against us. In fact, notice what Paul says at the end of this verse. He says, it is making me a prisoner. I'm imprisoned to the law of sin. It's, it's as if the picture is that, that the flesh and sin have shown up with a spear and they've taken, he's taken that spear and put the point of the spear in the small of Paul's back and he is pushing him towards sin. And he's saying, you must go towards sin. This, this is the war of the flesh. The flesh is always compelling us to move away from Christ, it is always fighting against us and our godly inclinations. But notice as well the inference that if, if the flesh is fighting against Him, that He's also fighting against it. He hasn't given up. He 's not said, "Well, woe is me, I just have this I have this weak body and the flesh that still remains, and there 's nothing I can do about it, so i 'm just going to have to give in and i 'm just going to have to indulge and i, I can 't change no he he fights, he resists, he persists so so he says, for instance, in first Timothy chapter one, uh, read the first seventeen verses in the eighteenth verse, Paul writes this: this commandment i and trust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Don't give up, Timothy. Don't quit, Timothy. Don't, don't stop, Timothy. Keep resisting. Keep pursuing. Keep fighting against the flesh. It's, it's a good fight. And Paul speaks elsewhere, and perhaps the, the preeminent passage about fighting against the flesh and and how to win that fight. He says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. The, The flesh is pushing against the Spirit. The flesh is warring against the Spirit of God. And the Spirit is warring against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But, verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You you, you can fight. You can resist. You don't have to give up. You don't have to give in. There is a war. Stay vigilant in the war. Pursue the battle. Stay in the battle. Don't quit. Don't ever give up. And yet, because of this war, because of this attempt of the flesh to make Paul a prisoner of the law of sin, because of the weakness of the members of his body, he almost explodes in verse 24. In what sounds like despair and despondency. Verse 24, Wretched man that I am. The word wretched means miserable. It means to be filled with anguish. He, he fills the grief and the weight and the horror and the emptiness and, and, and the putridness of the sin. And it grieves him. I am sick of this. I, I hate this. It is constantly pulling against him and he he wants to know more of the power of the Spirit to fight against the flesh and he wants to know less of the victory of the flesh. And as he looks at himself and as he looks at when he commits sin and he, he looks at his failures and he looks at his weaknesses and he just says, I'm still wretched. Who will set me free? Who's going to free me from this? Who can come that is outside of me that can take the bondage and the shackles of sin? There's no one. No one can do it and certainly I cannot do it. It's not in me and it's not in my righteousness. Who's going to set me free? Because the problem is not just that I'm ensnared. Notice what he says. Who will set me free from the body of this death? This is, this, is, this is a body of death. It's killing me. I don't know what Paul had in mind when he wrote that little phrase, the body of this death. But it could be that he was thinking about one of the Roman poets. A man named Virgil wrote a work called the Aeneid. And in one of the poems in the Aeneid, he talks about a man who is murdered And the criminal, because he is caught immediately, has the body of the murdered man strapped to him. Virgil writes this, The living and the dead at his command were coupled face to face, hand to hand, till choked... With stench in loathed embraces tied, the lingering wretches pined away and died. This dead body is strapped To the body and life of the criminal until the deadliness of the dead body and, and all of the things that go with a decaying body are transferred to the body of the live man and the decay of the dead man kills him. That's very much the picture that Paul has here. Who's, who's gonna set me free from this dead man? My flesh is a dead body that is strapped to me, corrupting me, killing me. Who's going to set me free? Who can liberate me? Who can give me hope? Kent Hughes is absolutely right when he says, Paul wants us to feel the emotion he experiences in trying to live up to God's standards in his own strength. A believer who tries to please God in his or her own strength will always come to disheartening, aching frustration. Always. Moreover, this will happen to good Christians, even super Christians. Paul was perhaps the greatest Christian ever, and this was his experience. He had more theology and passion in his little finger than most of us have in our entire life. Despite this, he sometimes tried to live up to God's standard on his own. It would be naive to say that Paul came to an understanding of how sin defeats us through the law, that once he came to that understanding, he never came under bondage again. He did. A wretched man. Abysmal man. Horrid man. Who's going to set me free? There's no hope. Verse 24 is just an explosion, isn't it? Of despair and longing. But whatever level the explosion is at in verse 24, it is that many times greater in verse 25. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? For someone to set me free? Oh yes, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, excuse me, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, there is, there is an opportunity, there is hope, there is freedom, and it comes through God. There is triumph, there is victory. But the victory is not in me. The victory is not in any man. The victory is in God. And Paul here is speaking with confidence and he is writing with authority because he knows that while there is a longing for the body of sin to be put away with, there is a reality that it will be put away with. So he says in Romans 8.24, For in hope we have been saved... But hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes and what he already sees. In other words, there's there's something that we don't see yet, but it's still there. It's, it's coming. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. It's coming. I know there's a redemption of my body that is coming. And he says, in, in fact, in chapter 8, verse thirty. Those whom He, God, predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Glory's coming. Transformation is coming. Change is coming. I'm not condemned under sin. I'm not constrained to always sin. There is hope through what God has done. But friends, notice He says, Thanks be to God. It's God alone. It's only God who has given him confidence and gives him reason for being confident. Only God can free him. Only God is worthy to receive thanks. Only God is worthy to receive the gratitude that he's offering. And notice that he does offer gratitude. He doesn't just say, God through Christ Jesus has freed me. No, he says, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. Friend, are you, are you spending time thanking God for what He has done in you through Christ Jesus? I don't know about you, but in my life, my heart is, has a propensity towards the I want us and not the thank yous. And so when I go to pray, I'm very often more consumed about God I need, God would you help God, would you give far more than I say, God, thank you. And Paul here is being overt in his gratitude. And friends, some of us need to, need to be spending more time saying, Thank you, God, for what you have done. Thank you, God, for what you have accomplished. Thank you, God, for the freedom. Thank you, God, for Christ Jesus. Thank you, God, for liberty. No, oh, friend... You do well to even just set aside a day. I I do this on occasion. Just set aside a day where every prayer you pray is a prayer of gratitude. No asking, no wanting, no begging, no pleading. But everything you pray is first run through the funnel of gratitude. Are you thanking God for His work On your behalf. But notice it's not just that God has accomplished this. Notice how God has accomplished. He says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our liberty is never accomplished by our own actions. It's always accomplished through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the means by which our freedom from sin's penalty and sin's power is produced. You want to be free from sin? It comes through Jesus Christ. And this is this is what the Apostle Paul has been reiterating all through this book. For instance, chapter 4. Verse 24, he says about Abraham, Now not only for his sake was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as, the, as justification, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. How does justification come? Come, it comes through Jesus our Lord. Chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Verse 11. And not only this, we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Chapter 5 verse 21. As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus our Lord. 623, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 8, verse 39, I know that neither height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do you get sanctified? How do you get saved? How do you mature in Christ? How do you fight against sin? It is only through Christ Jesus. And notice, he doesn't just say Christ Jesus. It is Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is the Master. He is sovereign. He is in control. Remember, back in chapter 3, verse 9, we are under sin. Chapter 7, verse 14, he says again, I am not of the flesh. I am sold under sin. I am under sin. But Christ Jesus is over sin. He's the master. He's sovereign. He's in control. He is the means to get out of our sin. Oh, so friends, there is hope. There is hope for the believer in this battle against sin. And it is the work of Christ and it is the lordship of Christ that is authoritative over sin. Now the question is, how does a believer come to know this reality? How, how do we How do we know and experience the reality that we've been set free? It kind of goes like this: I love that instrument right there, the piano. I love the piano. I wish I could play the piano i I grew up listening to classical music, so my folks love classical music and so when we had music on in the home almost all the time it was classical and i i Developed an affinity for it even today. Most of the time when I'm studying, you'll and come into my office, you'll hear me playing classical music. And of all classical music, I particularly love the piano pieces. My, my heart's just drawn to them. And I, I wish I could, I could play the piano. When my when I was young, my my father offered to pay for lessons for me to learn the piano, but it sounded like discipline, so so I wasn't interested. Noree and, and I owned a piano for 15 years. But that didn't help me in my ability to play the piano because I never sat down to actually try to play the piano. I don't even know, if I were to sit down at the piano, I don't even know enough about the piano to play chopsticks. Now, you could say, Terry, we want, we want to really help you in your quest to be able to play the piano that you love so much. And so you buy me a really fine piano. You have it delivered to my house. It's set up in my living room, and um, and it is it is the finest piano that money can buy. And 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 with that you get you get a really fine leather chair for me to sit on. It's it's just the right height, can be adjusted in just the right way. It is it is it is the best chair for sitting and playing the piano. And then, and then you say, well, well, we don't want to just bring the piano. We've moved it, so let's make sure it's tuned. So you bring in someone to tune it. It is tuned perfectly. And you say, well, well, you, you have to be able to play something, so let's make sure to get you all the music that you need to play. And you buy me a full set of all the music that I need to have in order to be able to play that piano. And then you say, but you need to be able to see the music. We know you don't see so well. That's why you're wearing glasses. So let's make sure you've got good lighting at the piano. And what does that do for me? I sit down at the piano and I still can't even play chopsticks. Why? The, the problem is not that, that you've bought me a piano. The problem is not that you've given me a tuxedo to wear and a chair to sit in and, and, and proper lighting and all the music. All those things are external to me. And my problem is internal, isn't it? I don't have an ability. Now, Let's suppose for just a moment that you could take the spirit of Frederick Chopin or Van Clyburn and put that inside of me. Now I'll take Schroeder's piano and I'm going to make that thing dance. Why? Because internally I'm changed, I'm a new man. And friends, this is, this is the exact parallel to how we fight against sin and how we can be freed from sin's tyranny. That, that the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit who belongs to Christ, comes to dwell in us, and when He dwells in us, and we submit to Him, and we follow His leadership, and we follow His authority, our lives are changed and transformed. In fact, this is the very message we're gonna see all the way through chapter 8. It's the Spirit of God living in us that will set us free. Oh, friend, there is hope. There is hope. You don't have to live under sin. You don't have to respond to sin. Jesus has set you free. And then yet, there is still a reality. This is the fourth thing I want you to see. The believer's reality, loving God and battling sin. So Paul says, beginning of verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord there is hope. But then he also comes back to reality. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind... My renewed mind, my inner man that has been transformed to the nature and the character of God. With that new man, I am serving the law of God. I'm obedient to Him, producing righteousness that comes from Him and for Him and through Him and to Him. But on the other hand, I still have my flesh and obeying the law of sin. This is a reality. The old man is gone. I'm entirely a new creature. And at the same time, the reality for every believer is that there is a remaining sin. I like what one commentator says. He says, verse 25 does not end with crushing defeat, but rather with continuing battle. We have died to the old realm, the old self. It has been nullified and we have been set free. Yet sin is not destroyed and it returns as an invading army from that realm and lays siege to us. Using the twin weapons of temptation and the flesh, our sinful nature, it can once more dominate our lives when we fail to depend on Christ and the Spirit. And that is the point of verse 25. The first half provides the solution for attaining victory over the flesh and sin. The second half reminds us that the battle is ongoing. Oh, friend, there's hope. But even the hope, remember the reality Now in my notes, I have some applicational principles. I have seven more things to say, and we don't have time. So let me say two final things as we wrap this up. If you are struggling with sin, if you're feeling this pull, if you're feeling this tension, I am doing this stuff that I hate. And I'm not doing the thing that I want to do. I want to have the right word. Even when I roll out of bed at 5 a.m. and and, and my body is weary and, and my mind hasn't still fully awakened, in that moment I want the right word. I just don't always do it. Oh friend, if that's your situation, then you are almost certainly a believer in Christ because... Because that's the longing of a believer. Only a believer has a renewed mind to have a renewed desire to think in a new way. And and if that's your longing, it is very likely, most likely, because you are a believer in Christ. Take comfort in that. Now friend, if this is not your tension, if this is not your wrestling, if you don't feel this weight, if you don't feel this pull, it is likely because it is almost certain that you are not a believer in Jesus Christ if you are content with your sin if you say god isn't worried about my sin god isn't concerned about my sin i'm okay with god and you don't feel the weight of your sin and the longing to be renewed and 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 freed from it it's very likely An indication that you have never trusted in Christ as your Savior. And what you need to do is you need to repent and you need to turn away from your sin and you need to, in faith, embrace Christ as your Savior. Embrace Christ. Have faith that He is the one who provided freedom from the penalty of sin so that He satisfied God. So God poured out His wrath on Him. And God says, if you trust in Christ, then I will account Christ's death as sufficient for your death. And I won't pour out my wrath on you. Have faith that God will do that. And have faith that Christ is worth living for. That Christ has the answers. That Christ is worthy of your delight. Oh, well, friend, you, you must repent if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. You must come to Him in faith today. Would you do that? Would you believe that living for Him is better than living for sin? Our Father, we thank you for this passage, which has dealt realistically with where we live. It has pointed out the true condition of our nature and heart and our being. And it has also provided hope for us. It has reminded us of what you do to change our inward longings and our inward desires. And it has begun to point us to Christ and the Spirit of Christ that will change us on a day-to-day level. And so would You continue to renew us? Would You continue to give us satisfaction in You? Would You continue to give us submission to the Spirit so that we might walk in hopefulness and victory? Would You do that for us, Father, even this day? We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.